Welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here with Howard Tybal. Hello, Howard. How are you today? I'm doing very well, sir. It's fine, fine day that I get to hear your voice in my head. I thought you were always thinking about me. You are the voice inside my head, Howard. We're going to be talking about education policy today, the way that policy impacts our work and administration every day, and the fundamental changes ahead in how we impact our most important constituency, our students. Before we dig in, make sure to head over to tybalink.com to learn more about us and this show. Subscribe for free. Just click the blue button and we'll keep you updated as we post new shows. Amy Lightnan serves as Director for Higher Education at New America. She served as Policy Advisor on Higher Education at both the U.S. Department of Education and the White House. She was named by the Chronicle of Higher Education as one of the top 10 innovators of 2013 for her work on federal policy and competency-based education. Today, her efforts are focused on crafting federal policies to increase quality and transparency in higher ed. Amy, welcome to Navigating Change. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I feel like I should say finally at the end of that sentence. (laughs) Yeah. This is a conversation like Jurassic Park. Yes. Uh, This is an interview 65 million years in the making. Absolutely. We've been been talking about having Amy on the show forever and just through a series of rescheduling and some technology, but this is the perfect time. So, Howard, let's talk a little bit. Frame this up for us. How how would you like to to, uh, organize our conversation today? What do you see as the single biggest question we can kick off for Amy? Well, so here's how I'd, I'd want to introduce you into this, Amy, and that is, and thank you so much for being on the show. Of course. Uh, you know, I think we, we don't get the benefit of external stakeholders like yourself, especially who are interacting with the federal or state governments, and because I think a lot of people don't understand even how that works, including myself. I think that you, you bring a level of... Uh, of transparency and potential engagement for our audience of higher ed leaders. So, you know, the thing that I've discovered in all the work we're doing around the country is this idea of what does it mean to put students first? I I think we put a lot of attention in having language that says student success, or maybe it's couched in terms of retention, uh, access, affordability. But I think in the end, when I watch leaders navigate choices around strategy and they're doing the sort of the mechanics of their work all the way from the board, all the way on down, somehow the student gets lost in the conversation. And I'm curious, when you think about and and the amount of time you've been supporting higher education, I'm curious why you think that is. From your vantage point, do you also share that concern that the student gets lost in the kinds of decisions and choices we get, we, we make around um, trying to improve higher ed? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a sort of systemic problem. I think it happens at the federal level, the state level, the institutional level. And I think you identified some of the, the reason that this happens, right, is that people get absorbed in the day-to-day and it's really hard to take a step back and to say, what are we doing and how are all these various efforts work uh, working in the same direction? And I'll just give you a non-specific specific example. I'm a reviewer for the Aspen Community College Prize. And so, you know, we look at hundreds of applications of colleges who want to be recognized as as one of the premier community colleges in the country. And And it's so obvious that all of these college presidents and the provosts and everybody on the ground is really trying to address the issue of student success. But oftentimes they're they're doing it in a really uncoordinated way, right? So there's, you know, 
I mean, some of these colleges have 100,000 students, and so they have multiple campuses, and they have different folks who are in charge of different things who are working on this idea, this idea, this implementation, this grant-funded project, this other grant-funded project, this Department of Education-funded project, this Department of Labor-funded project, and everybody is off doing their own projects. And there isn't enough time sort of spent taking a step back to say, how are all of these efforts actually adding up to more than the sum of their parts? Are they? Are they not? Would we be better off having fewer of these, quote unquote, student success efforts and actually just streamlining them or focusing on them or picking the ones that we know work? And I think that's a whole nother thing we could talk about is figuring out whether or not what we're doing is working. And I think too often folks just get so busy and they think, oh, well, we're doing these student success efforts, but we're not actually learning whether or not they're making a difference for our students. So I think that's one thing. I think another thing that's really problematic at the federal level is that many of the policymakers themselves and then their staffers, and this is both in Congress and at the White House and in the Department of Education, the people who are actually writing the policy and informing the people who are writing the policy have very traditional higher education backgrounds. They were students who did well in high school. They went to largely selective institutions, many private institutions, and they themselves didn't experience many of the hurdles that students are experiencing and didn't experience higher education in the way that students today are experiencing them. So I think that that causes a disconnect because how do you solve a problem uh, if you if you have an understanding of what higher education is and your sort of default is to go back to that? It's very hard to to create policies that actually affect the students who are most concerned about the ones who are not likely to just succeed on their own, who actually need the structure and support and intentionality of uh, of colleges. Most higher education leaders, when they think about federal state involvement, like you said, it's really about funding, right? That's sort of where it begins yep. and ends with them. Is, uh, is our funding going to continue? Is yep. it going to decrease? I'm working with a, with a research institution in one of the states that is preparing itself for an even greater decrease in funding and saying, even though we're a large research institution, we have to start operating as if we are not going to be getting this funding five to 10 years down the road and we'll be a quasi-private institution. So the nature of the conversation that private and publics have, have so much to do with this issue of making it more possible that students can get access to their institution. In many ways, it's a to bring it down to a, to a school level or an institution level, they are concerned about how is this going to impact my institution. And then there's the broader conversation around higher education that you have the benefit of, of impacting. So let me ask you this. New America, what role does New America play in attempting to create these bridges between uh, the federal government and the institutions, this this very large decentralized uh, uh, set of institutions? I'll try to answer part of something that you said earlier as I address this, but you talked about the research funding and the question of how will it impact my institution. I think that's a classic example of where institutions focus their efforts at the federal level. And the research funding and your listeners may disagree, but I would argue that most of the research dollars aren't actually going towards improving student success, which is where we open this conversation. That's right. And 
that to me, and I understand why schools are trying to get those dollars, but there's a bigger picture here and one that I think the feds are increasingly paying attention to. And one of the roles that I see for New America is to try to be more of an independent voice looking at the broader picture of student success and the role of post-secondary education in helping individuals and our nation sort of achieve their goals and their economic goals and their their dreams. And, you know, without trying to be hokey, I think that that's really the point. And too often in D.C., you have these membership associations of which probably all of your listeners, you know, institutions belong to one or more more of these uh, membership associations that try to, quote, represent their interests. The problem is the these membership associations represent the interests of the institution, not necessarily the interests of the students. And sometimes those interests overlap. So, for example, when you're looking for funding for the Pell Grant uh, and you want to increase funding for the Pell Grant, uh, that helps schools because they're able to then get more money through the students, and it helps students. But there are other times the institutional and the student interests may be at odds. And I could give some examples if you want. But I think that that New America tries to be a countervailing voice to the very powerful higher education lobby. And the higher education lobby is a bunch of different things. But generally, like I said, they are trying to support institutional interests. And we're there to sort of call them out on it and to support efforts where we think it's going to be good for students and to push back where it isn't. So one example that's a favorite example, although that sounds crazy because I think this is a horrible example, but a a go-to example um, relates to basically the private higher education lobby uh, fighting to get Congress to hide information on student outcomes from students and the public. So what did that look like? So um, back in the early 2000s, um, the Department, U.S. Department of Education was trying to figure out how to get better information out there in the world about student outcomes. And that includes, you know, retention, graduation. We have these flawed metrics at the federal level. And They said, you know, they were thinking, wait, we have a bunch of information ourselves. There are other federal agencies that have information like the Department of Defense, uh, the GI Bill. We're asking schools to do these very burdensome iPads reporting surveys and all this stuff is a pain. But if we actually were able to just combine all of this existing data, we could have better, more um, transparent outcomes, outcome information by institution. And so the Department of Education talked about doing this, and the private higher education lobby went into gear and lobbied Congress, and in 2008, uh, Congress put into law a prohibition on the Department of Education uh, sort of connecting these data and making them public to the world. And that's crazy. You're talking about students and families making one of the most important and expensive decisions of their lives, and they cannot get information on outcomes, not because the data aren't there, but because this powerful higher education lobby lobbied for it, and no one knows. And it's it's scandalous. I mean, it's so upsetting. So what happens? So this is interesting because this is the kind of information most of us uh, do are not even aware that that was happening behind the scenes, right? And then there is what's been happening over the last eight years, or even the last four years, in terms of a push by the federal government to really demand uh, one to try and put a scorecard in place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and then schools who are being proactive saying we're going to we're going to sort of jump on this as a way of demonstrating how we want to tell the story so so fast forward from 2008 mm-hmm. where is that today in terms of this federal scorecard versus institutional scorecards well so i think the obama administration and you know, to be transparent, I was in the Obama administration. Uh, the Obama administration really did try to push for more transparency and more accountability within the limits of the law. And some people will say outside of the limits. I mean, some folks will say that the administration has overreached. Um, I don't think that's the case, but I certainly know that others do. But there are limits to what they could do. So they published some information on the scorecard, what they had, what they could. Um, they've they've enacted a bunch of regulations. I mean, there was some saber rattling around holding colleges accountable uh, that didn't really go anywhere other than with uh, gainful employment for largely the um, for-profit and community college sectors, uh, because there, there wasn't that much that the department could do. I mean, the real, for me, the real hook is these $130 billion a year in, in loans and grants and Pell grants that the department um, issues every year. And to me, I think that's a really big hook you could use, but the department can't use it on its own. It needs Congress in order to weigh in. And Congress has been unwilling to do so in large part because I think Congress is captured by industry. And uh, fast forwarding a little bit on this, uh, this ban that I was talking about, I, I call it the college blackout. So there have been, there's some bipartisan legislation that's been introduced in both chambers bipartisan on both sides with people like you know, Republicans like Marco Rubio and Paul Ryan, Speaker Paul Ryan, and Democrats like um, Senators Wyden and Bennett uh, that would try to repeal this college blackout. blackout. But what's interesting is, I'm just going to take the House side for a second, is that you have a bunch of Democrats, you have a bunch of Democrats who are supporting this repeal, and you have a number of very conservative Republicans who are supporting it, but you don't have a single Republican who's on the committee who supports it, which to me just indicates that the committee is captured by industry, just like in every other industry, right? We think about big oil and big tobacco. We never really think about big higher ed. And again, it's much more nuanced, but there's uh, absolutely but it's powerful. But but you but you see patterns, and you're articulating a, a view where certain patterns show up, and some of it's based on history and how things have played out in the past. Let's let's pivot to this mm-hmm. to the Higher Education Act because I would imagine that's a lever that most institutions they're, they're they're waiting to see if if and when this is the it's going to be renewed. Where yep. is that right now? So it's currently overdue. It should have been uh, done again, but I think the last reauthorization was eight years overdue. So it's going to take some time. Uh, There was some hope, which was probably ill-founded, that we might see something this year, but there is no way that's happening, not with the presidential election. Exactly. And, um, you know, there's still some talk. I think it's a very fleeting possibility that there might be a smaller package of reforms that are bipartisan that people can agree on. So a lot has been... I think there's a lot of consensus now that there that didn't exist four years ago on like FAFSA simplification, for example. Um, you know, you have student loans. You have nine different repayment rates or repayment options, which is really confusing for borrowers. Oh, yeah. So yeah. there's a lot of interest, bipartisan interest in 
streamlining simplifying. that. Yeah. Simplifying that exactly. So there are some things like that that I think uh, some folks hope might be able to be done this session. I wouldn't hold my breath on that, but I would expect that that would be in a in a bipartisan bill uh, if we ever see one. And so I think we're likely to see uh, folks acting on the, at least introducing bills in a uh, next year. You know, where they go is unclear because there are things that there's a lot of consensus around. And then there are things that it seems like there's consensus around. So there's a lot of concern at the federal level about quality. And I want to be clear for your audience, because I think we all speak in language and we think we're meaning the same thing, but we're not. The way I think about quality assurance at the federal level isn't really about, is it quality? It's, is it not quality? Is it bad? I don't think the federal government does a great job at sort of differentiating high performers and medium performers. But I think the federal government could and should, and this is my opinion, and some folks disagree with this, but could and should sort of kick out really bad performing actors where you have students who are, I mean, you can sort of say with a high level of certainty, if a student goes to this school and is in this particular program, that their likelihood of, of finishing is very low. Uh, and, you know, and that they'll finish and be in a ton of debt and be worse off than if they had never gone, or that they finish their degree, but the degree is essentially worthless and they end up making minimum wage or close to minimum wage for 10 years. Like, yeah. I don't think that's the promise of higher education. And it's hard for faculty members to hear that because I think, you know, most folks are like, oh, I, you know, I'm trying to do the right thing or my institution is trying to do the right thing. And I believe that's true in most cases. But there are other cases in which students are really being harmed by some of these programs. And I well, think the feds have a role. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is and I think that you're also tying something I had asked you previously is this idea of uh, not just quality, but transparency. Right. At the Absolutely. heart of what you're talking about is being transparent and, and finding a way to make it available, but let people know what they're really getting into. We're going to be having a conversation with Scott Carlson, who writes mm-hmm. for the Chronicle, oh, he's and he wrote a piece which I just found so compelling, which was "Should Everyone Go to College?" Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't think what's what's wonderful about the question, it's not that he's advocating either way, but I, I think he's saying we need to be more nuanced, and and also talking about the elephants in the room. One of which is this idea that people get into debt and they and there is this presumption that the degree itself is going to get you to the next place. And the, mm-hmm. and the, the dilemma today, it seems, is that there are there are fewer there's a perception of fewer and fewer options besides jumping into college to be able to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And I think the industry has, sold that idea because one of their goals is to get more and more students to enroll. So I'm not disagreeing that college is an incredible – most of the people I interact with and talk to um, and and have known over the years have some form of a college degree. But my concern is, is that we're not having that conversation in a thoughtful way. and And that's what you're raising here. Absolutely. And I also think that it – I mean there's a few, a few things in there. I think there – is the overarching question and hand-wringing about, is college worth it? And I think that's the wrong question because unequivocally, on average, 
college is worth it. But the real question is which college and which program and which price. And so that's one issue. And then the second is what are we calling college? And I think we it gets back to this point about sort of staffers and many faculty members who sort of come up through the ranks in a traditional way who went to four-year residential campuses and then went to grad school. I mean, that's not where that's not what most college is today. I mean, most college students, many college students are community college students. They're going part-time. They're juggling other responsibilities. Right. They have dependents. And so how can, to me, it isn't either college or not college, but how do we redefine like what, what is post-secondary education and how can our policies and practices work to support students to give them what they need? They may not need a four-year degree, or maybe they do, but they need a four-year degree from a different type of institution. Or, you know, we don't need to send students who are, you know, 40 years old who have a ton of experience in their field, but they just need that credential to get to the next level. We don't need to send them through four years of school, which if they're going part-time is going to be eight years. If it's in their own field, they probably have a lot to bring to the table already. So there's a lot of different um, different ways that you could look at it. And I think we've been, we've been pretty narrow in our thinking. And then selling people a bill of goods and just sort of saying college will be worth it. And then, oops, sorry, that college wasn't really worth it. Now you're stuck with you know, debt and a meaningless degree, it's too bad for you. Well, that's one of the things that's so that that is as a faculty member so upsetting. And where the biggest obstacle in getting from point A to a degree is not the work that they are doing in the classroom, which is fine. It is actually getting to the classroom. It's 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 mm-hmm. the systems and processes for delivery of education that we have artificially created and have been so wildly reluctant to change. Absolutely. Uh, that is one of the things that's really frustrating. But it's also frustrating you know, from my perspective, I mean, when you, you actually called it out, you know, uh, people who are in the classroom have a hard time hearing this, uh, you, you know, when you talk about these, uh, some of these things that are the, the lobbying in particular, the lobbying for, mm-hmm. uh, from private higher ed, mostly because, again, speaking slowly, I've never met an administrator that is, you know, wrongheaded about some of these issues on a blanket level. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, some of the lobbying efforts that go into play don't seem to represent my institution and the institutions that I've been a part of. Where does that come from? Well, so that's a great question. I mean, This is what's fascinating to me is that I think, and I don't know how to document this or how to prove it, but I've been mulling this over and I'm so glad you, I'm so glad you confirmed what I already thought. (laughs) Because I feel like when I go out and talk to folks in the field, oftentimes they're horrified by the way that the membership associations in DC are representing their interests. And I think... It may just be the fact that they're consensus-oriented membership associations, and so the person with the strongest opinion basically has veto power. So it could be that the that they're very conservative, I would say reactionary, uh, you know, just give us money and leave us alone position probably isn't reflective of the bulk of the institutions, but it's reflective of the loudest. And I don't know what to do with that, but I, I, I hear it all the time. I mean, I hear... You know, I, yeah, I hear exactly what you just said all the time, and I don't know how institutions and folks within institutions can push back because, you know, it's this is my job and my life is focusing on federal policy and what's happening here in D.C. You all are, have a million things that you're doing, right? You can't be in tune with all of this all the time. So part of the value of a membership association is that they have folks on the ground who can do all the, you know, the heavy lifting and have their ear to the ground and then tell you all what to do. And then I don't mean tell you what to do, but sort of say, here's the recommendations. And for the most part, the schools will follow it. That's why you 
pay them so that they can represent your interests, not so you can second guess it. But I don't know where that, I, I don't know how you would sort of change that. And if anybody, if either of you or anybody on the, who's listening has ideas, please let me know because I would <laughs> try to help because I think, I, I don't think anyone is being well served by Well, that's the bridge thing. you're talking about. Yeah. And, they, and as I listen more to sort of your mindset and how you approach your work, in many ways, it sounds like you're, you're the thing you you care about most and the thing that you that you're representing as new america is a way to be a bridge between federal policy and how these institutions are navigating this not at a micro level but at a macro level and the the inherent dilemma with that is that is that people are very micro focused typically mm-hmm. so they don't know how to engage in these conversations and that's an, an inherent dilemma in in how to actually create that bridge Absolutely. You you describe my job much more eloquently than I ever have. So I'm going to I'm going to steal that <laughs> and say yes, that that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I mean I do feel like my job is sort of like marriage counseling sometimes where I you know sort of depending on who the actors are, I'm always trying to get everybody the uh, I'm trying to represent everybody else's point of view and try to build empathy, right? Because I think too many folks just sort of see the feds as the big bad feds. And I'm like, they're not the big bad feds. They're actually trying to do things for this reason, or the creditors are terrible for this reason, or the business community is terrible, or faculty are terrible, whoever. And I'm, I'm like, I think, you know, I think there are a few bad actors, but for the most part, I think we probably have similar goals. And let's yeah. just try to understand each other's point of view so that we can work together to to get there. Yeah. So what do you want people to, you know, to educate themselves about what you're doing uh, and some of the things that New America is doing? We'll clearly put some uh, links on our site so people could check you out more. But is there anything that's top of mind for you as you look out in the next three to six months that you go, here's where we're focusing and and please engage with us? Does anything come to mind? Well, I think, again, since I'm so focused on the federal level, I'm very curious to see how this election is going to play out and what the implications will be for higher education. Um, I have no idea really what a Donald Trump administration would mean. Um, I don't think any of us know anything. So I'm just going to ignore that for now just because we don't know anything. Um, I think a Clinton administration... I think that there will be a lot of consumer protection oriented. Again, I'm not sure if this is true, but this is what I anticipate, that there will be continued emphasis on protecting consumers. Uh, One of the things that I'm worried about, and again, this may not be based in anything, but one of the things I'm worried about is the role that innovation will play in a new administration, particularly Clinton administration. And I only say that because I think this administration has really tried to focus on innovation in higher education. Well, and pushing I, the boundaries, right? Pushing the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that um, they've gotten a lot of pushback, and I don't know where a Clinton administration will feel comfortable in terms of pushing back. They might feel very comfortable. They may not. But I think that um, within the Democratic Party, and again, I'm speaking in sort of broad brush here, so obviously there's nuance, but I think that uh, there's been this tension, not even within the Democratic Court, but generally between innovation on one side and consumer protection on the other. And I think that too often we've seen this swing where we've just said, oh, here's a new innovative thing like correspondence education or competency-based education or distance education. Let's do that thing. And we do that thing without 
any controls around it or any guardrails to prevent bad actors from abusing it. And so, you know, we see the cutting edge institutions doing these cool things and we say, hey, why shouldn't more students get that? They should. And then we just throw the gates open. And it's really tempting for sort of fraudulent actors to come in and say, ooh, I want to get some of that $130 billion. And then we see fraud and abuse. And then we go to the other extreme and we're like, we're going to shut it down. And so we shut it down. As opposed to really living in, in, it's what you said earlier, is this idea that there's a balance that we have to find. That can absolutely. we can we? And I think this is interesting because I think the this is the nature of what most challenges with human beings are in any industry is that we get into either or thinking. Absolutely. And and we get and that's why the pendulum swings is because rather than saying we're going to actually innovate while having protections, Mm -hmm. that's a harder thing to navigate than just to say one or the other. And I think that's at the, that's a really important message for, for what you're saying, not just around innovation, but anything we're taking on. Can we find a way to recognize it's, it's not a linear, simple conversation. At the same time, I can tell you as a communicator and helping people communicate, we have to find a way to make these distinctions simple for people to understand. Otherwise, that's why they jump to uh, to linear thinking, because the nuance is hard for people if we don't keep it simple. Absolutely. And I do feel like that's where I try in this role is to, I try to stay in, I mean, I don't know if it's the middle or where it is, but I try to stay balanced and try to say we can have consumer protections and innovation, but it's hard. It's really hard to stay there. And and I know I'm, you know, I keep bringing this back up, but some of it is hard because of the uh, various lobbyists, right? So again, there's a, a bunch of different folks, but around some of this innovation work, there are powerful forces that want things to be opened up more broadly. So, you know, we're working on some stuff and we think we've gotten a coalition together where nobody's like super happy with everything, but they're like, okay, this can work. And then some, you know, deep pocketed, somebody comes over or well-connected somebody comes in and says, Hey, I want to open this up to the whole world. And then people very quickly scatter to their, their previous corners. And they just say, Nope, we don't want any of that because that's going to be bad for students. Or, you know, we have to do this because we're opening up innovation. And so, it's a balance, but yeah, humans are hard. Humans are so hard. <laughs> the biggest, it, it's so challenging because so many of the, quote, sort of bad actors in the field now didn't start out as bad actors. It came as a result of very complex systems that suddenly allowed for opportunity or greed at a Absolutely. level that suddenly appears crappy. But here's the other dilemma with that, Pete, is that it's a, these are, this is the other problem I you know, as you hear you say about bad actors, is that too often it, it takes a couple bad actors that give the impression that it's much more systemic than it is. So we got to be careful not to get, let the bad actors hijack the conversation because that's why things get shut down is it takes one or two vocal or, or not just vocal, but, but, uh, maybe an institutional breakdown with with a particular group that comes in and actually doesn't serve the inst- and then somebody says, you know what, we can't have any of this. And to yes. me, that's the other bigger problem. This is, is why we-, we can't have nice things. Yes, but so. part of that though, I would throw it back to institutions though and say, I think if we focused from a federal policy perspective, if if we focused on some broad outcomes and we said, okay, institutions, you will not be able to get federal aid if 
these, you know, four terrible things happen. Like the majority of your students end up getting minimum wage jobs for the rest of their lives, or the majority of them don't graduate, or, or you know, sort of depending on mission type, et cetera, et cetera. And, and if we were, if we were willing, if Congress were willing to take a stand and say, we're going to at least say no to this like terrible, you know, the, the sort of like the most terrible, then I think we could be much more open and flexible about the rest of it. But because Congress has been unwilling to do that, then you see the department trying to use the regulatory authority to to try to bring some accountability, but it's not really what those tools were used for. Yeah. They can't do them in more precise ways. They have to apply it to pretty much everybody. So it's sort of the worst of both worlds. And and I think it. I would encourage institutions to be willing to stand up and say, we're okay with increased transparency. We're okay with being held accountable for like a baseline level of results. That's fine with us, you know, like, and then leave us alone. Okay, fine. But, right, right. but, but that is, that's not the message that's being received on the Hill. Well, and it's so much more important. All of that makes it so much more important that you are even here uh, helping to champion this conversation and to help our listeners understand sort of the role of advocacy and, and uh, why it's so important to be at least involved and aware, unlike me, uh, <laughs> that these discussions are actually happening and you may not be present, but it might be useful. Uh, so where, you've already mentioned, uh, you know, where some people can find you. Well, so uh, you can always go to edcentral.org, which is our blog where we have a variety different things that come up. And if when we release new papers, they are put on our on our New America blog at edcentral.org. You could also just go to newamerica.org and then you can find we have a team, 11 strong, of great folks who are focusing on different issues. You can follow us all on Twitter if you want, because uh, sometimes we write, you know, we do write big papers and big thought pieces. We had one recently that is calling for the federal government to rethink its role with the states because so many states are disinvesting in higher education and we think the feds need to push the states a little bit uh, to prevent them from doing that. So we do do big thought pieces like that. But then we also will blog and just sort of tweet our ideas. So I think there's a variety of ways in which folks can engage in our work. And if you look at our blog and follow us on Twitter, you can you can find us. I think this was fantastic. Amy, uh, you bring something that is very – in the 150 or so podcasts we've had, right? we've never had this kind of conversation. And I think uh, what our listeners need to do is listen for the pieces and what you talked about where they should educate themselves even a little bit more where they are. Because I think there's a, there's a lot where we got our heads buried in the weeds and trying okay. to just get through the next, next budget cycle at the same time. I think you're bringing something that uh, education leaders need to figure out how to partner more with institutions like you so that they can actually do a better job of staying connected with uh, federal policy. Well, that would be great. I would welcome the opportunity for anyone who's listening who wants to reach out. I would be happy to talk and figure out how we can build some of these bridges so that, you know, everybody is getting what they need and students are served well. Great way to end it. Thank you so much, Amy. On behalf of Amy Lightman and Howard Teibel, I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next time on Navigating Change, the education podcast from Teibel, Inc.